Okay, I'm glad you're here. I'm very excited to discuss um, the whole topic of creation, mistakes, forgiveness, human fallibility, and God's love. And to show you how all of these concepts really come together very strongly in Jewish thought, especially as we're in the month of Elul right now. And this is actually the month where the entire world, the, the physical universe, was created. The world was actually created on the 25th day of the month of Elul. And that might sound um, surprising to some people, but if you just hear uh, the next thought, you'll realize, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, that makes perfect sense. Most people are accustomed uh, to thinking that the world was actually created on Rosh Hashanah, which is the first day of the month of Tishrei. And there is a logic to thinking that. In fact, it says in the prayers that we say on Rosh Hashanah, today is the birthday of the world. We say that many, many times uh, in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah. So it's sort of been drummed into our head that Rosh Hashanah is the day that, that the world was created. And um, Rosh Hashanah is the reason why the world was created. It's actually the sixth day of creation. And it's the day that human beings, men and women, were created. That's, that's why we celebrate the beginning on Rosh Hashanah, because that's when God's work, so to speak, or the, 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 the revealed reason of God's work, was, was implemented. So we mark it from, from that day, from the day that the project, so to speak, was finished. We know, of course, that it was the seventh day. That's when the first Sabbath comes into the world. That's when the soul of creation enters into the world. That that's really when God's creation was finished. But nonetheless, the purpose of creation is human beings, and that's the sixth day, so that's when we celebrate, really, the beginning of the world. Okay, having said that, though, when was the actual first day of creation? When God said, let there be light, right? When God said, brachis, right, in the beginning, that whole thing? That's actually six days beforehand. So if you count six days before, from, the, from Rosh Hashanah, from the first day of the month of Tishrei, you get what we started out with the 25th day of the month of Elul. Okay, so hopefully that makes perfect sense. There's, not, there's no controversial thought in there. That's just, that's just our tradition. Okay, fine. So now, let's zero in on this concept that the world was actually created in the month of Elul. Because that's a very striking thing. And now when you approach the purpose of life, the human condition, from the standpoint that the world was created in Elul, then all of a sudden you get very deep understanding about what God expects from us and, and how, much God, uh, how much love God has for us and how much patience God's, God has for us. So let me just develop this idea. So Elul, Elul is very, very striking because Elul has these dual qualities, as, as we see. One quality of Elul is the fact that the world was created in Elul. As we're, as we're saying, the 25th day of the month of Elul. And in fact, I want to say another thought on that, on that subject, which will give us a, perhaps a, an even deeper understanding of the nature of creation in Elul. Okay? You know, my friend Ari came up to me today, and uh, we were talking about these things over Shabbos, and he said, you know, there's something else very striking about the 25th, because on the, you're saying that the 20, on the 25th day of the month of Elul, the world was created, right? We just went through all the math to show you how that's the case. But also, the 25th day of the month of Kislev is the first day of Hanukkah. And he said, is there a parallel there? And there's a very deep, wonderful parallel there. And it also answers a question that I've been sort of like scratching my head over for, for a long time. And, and it's the following. You see, Hanukkah, the 25th day of the month of Kislev, is the day when God made this miracle of light. Right? There was only a little bit of light and it lasted longer. But, but the question, the, the, the thought that I've been trying to wrap my mind around for years is that all the Rebbes say that by the light of the, of the menorah contains something called the Or Haganus. Now, now, the Or Haganus, if you're not familiar with this concept, and you'll see how it ties into creation wonderfully, like a hand in a glove. The Or Haganus, when God said, let there be light, 
a lot of people, I think most people, very mistakenly believe that God was talking about the light of the sun. God was absolutely not talking about the light of the sun. That comes several days later in the creation narrative. What God was referring to was this awesome, awesome, incredible light. This incredible, incredible light. And then the rabbis teach that God said, you know something, this light is so great to bask in this light. You know, when we talk about um, our life in the next world, meaning after 120 when our soul ascends, we talk about our souls, our neshamas, basking in the ziv hashchina. That's the way the, the rabbis phrase it, which means the, this awesome light of the shechina, of God's revealed presence. So this is, this is, this is heavenly. It's heavenly to experience this light. So God says, you know something? I see that there are going to be many, many people who are not righteous in this world. Is it proper for them to bask in this, this light, this awesome light, which is what God begins the world with? So God tucks it away. He hides it away until the end of days. So we're waiting for this light to return. Now, where did God put the light? That's the big question. And one of the great teachings, which I, I saw in the name of the B'nai Yisachar, is if you actually look, in, right in the beginning of the Torah, it's actually chapter 1, verse 3. So, it's the third verse of the Torah. It's like right there, basically right after God says, let there be light. Hashem says um, that God uh, saw the light, and it was good. And if you look at the Hebrew words there, Es Ha'or, which means the light, and we're talking about this original light, the light. Es Ha'or is the gematria, the numerical equivalent, 613. So God put that light in the Torah. That's where God hid the light. And of course, that's one of the reasons why the Torah itself is so miraculous and so awesome, because it contains this original light of creation. That's why it's ever new. That's why it never gets old. That's why you'll always, 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 no matter how smart you are, you can be the greatest genius in the world. You will never stop seeing new things in the Torah because it contains this original light. Okay, now, with this in mind, isn't it interesting, now we can understand what the sages are getting at a little bit when they say that on Hanukkah, which is also the 25th, like the 25th day of Elul, this is the 25th day of Kislev, Hanukkah, right, which parallels creation. And what do we do? We do light. In fact, very interestingly, if you take the 25th word of the Torah itself, right, because Hanukkah is on the 25th, if you count the 25th word of the Torah, the word is or, which means light. Okay? Now we can understand a little bit what the sages mean when they say that the Or Haganus, a little taste of the original light, is in the menorah, is in the light of the menorah. Of course, it's not on the same scale, but there is, because there is this parallel to the creation of the world itself, there is this aspect of the Or Haganus. And so that's just the beginning of understanding what that connection is. Go ahead. There's also this idea, a Shlomo Torah, that the Hanukkah is the conclusion of the High Holidays. It's Nashmin Yasseret. It's Hanukkah when you've done all the work and it's just, you just need the simple light to have that connection. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Rebbe is saying that really the, um, you know, we, we, we know that the, we're inscribed in whichever book, we should all be inscribed in, the, in, the, in all the good books, on Rosh Hashanah. Then it becomes sealed on Yom Kippur. Then that judgment is delivered on Hoshana Rabbah. Okay, so, so traditionally that's sort of like the end of that, but really they say that it stays open until the eighth day of Hanukkah, which has a special name called Zos Hanukkah. So even until the eighth day of Hanukkah, really on a mystical level, those gates and the judgment for the year is still open. But really the primary time that we focus on is really the period between Rosh Hashanah and, and, and Yom Kippur, uh, and Hoshana Rabbah. But this is a good transition back into what I wanted to really discuss today, which is the month of Elul, because this whole process of getting ourselves ready really begins in Elul. And there's a very interesting sort of hint to Elul and the importance of Elul. 
Um, in, in the prophecy of the prophet Amos, uh, in, in English we say Amos, and, and it's chapter 3, verse 8. In a very short little pasuk, a very short verse, it says, A lion has roared, who will not fear? Okay, that's chapter 3, verse 8. A, ch- a lion has roared, who will not fear? So if you look at the... It, it's talking about blowing the shofar around in the, in, the, in the verses around there and things like this. So the word for lion is aryeh. And that's spelled Aleph, Resh, Yud, He. And I can't tell you exactly who said this, but a very great rabbi says that that's, that's an acronym, Arye, for this time of year. That God, so to speak, is the lion who's roaring, right? So, so what does Arye stand for? Aleph, Elul, Resh, Rosh Hashanah, Yud, Yom Kippur. Hey, Hoshana Rabbah. So, in other words, creation itself, so to speak, is roaring. Because this is a time of tshuva. In other words, this, this return to God at this period of the year, it's embedded in, in creation itself. So, it's not just that, okay, now we've decided whatever it is, we're going to start to get our act together. No, this is hinting at something much deeper. This is saying that because the judgment is coming... Right, the next sort of like big milestone in terms of the unfolding of creation. There's a judgment coming up for all of us individually and as a community and as a world. So to speak, it's like the lion is roaring and we have to get it together. But the point that I really want to make is that the first letter of that process is Aleph of Aryeh, which stands for Elul, which means that the real push toward the preparation, toward creation itself waking up, if you will, and all of us waking up, is really beginning in the month of Elul, which is right now. Okay. Now I want to really make the point that, that is my central point for this whole talk. And we're going to see cool illustrations of it and all the rest, but this is really the, the, the meaty point that I'm most excited to share. So... So we've laid the groundwork for this thought now. And now, like Rib Shlomo would say, open up your hearts. Because we hear, we're hearing two ideas. I don't know if you're organizing the thoughts as you're hearing it. I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you right now. But we're hearing two main ideas. And now I just want to expose them and put them together and show you how they work hand in hand. One idea is that this is the month where the world itself was created. The second idea is that this is the month where we're returning to God and we're fixing all of our mistakes in preparation for the judgment. Okay? So, so that's, a very, that's, a, that's a very interesting thing. And, and to further support that, to further support that, let me just add the following, which is that on the first day of the month of Elul, that is when Moshe, Moses, went up to Mount Sinai the second time to get the second set of tablets, which were the same as the first in terms of content, right? The, the first set was, you know, very miraculous. The second set, not so miraculous, but they lasted longer. So, you know, that's a study in itself. But anyway, the point is, is that the sin of the golden calf is being forgiven now. And now we're getting our second chance. So if you will, this is sort of like the Baal Tshuva day, or the Baal Tshuva month of the Jewish people, it's the return of the Jewish people when God is forgiving us for our mistakes and He's giving us the Torah again. Okay, so now let's revisit the, the premise. So you see two very interesting things coming together. One, it's a month of newness, a month of creation, where everything is just virginal. And I'm using that word very deliberately. Because the mazel, the zodiac sign, in Jewish thought, for the month of Elul, is the besula, is the virgin. Like, and this is talking men and women. I mean, it's talking about really the concept, is the idea of newness and freshness. And that correlates with like Virgo, for instance. Right? But, but this is in Torah, okay? By the way, just, I'm sorry for the additional aside, but just, just so you know, 
You know, it's funny, in this week's Parsha, Parsha Shoftim, we read that astrology is forbidden. Okay? And yet you see that there is a deep tradition of astrology in, in Torah, in the mystical sources. So what's the reconciliation? So just to say it very, very quickly and simply, the type of astrology that's forbidden by the Torah, by God, is, is that which tries to predict the future. So if you're using astrology to, to make a determination if this is a good time to travel, or if this is a good time to do business, or something like that, that's forbidden. You have to just trust in God. Okay? However, each of the different months has a different personality to them. Okay? The way that I heard it so brilliantly and clearly, in my opinion, described by Rabbi Kiva Tatz, is the following. Imagine if you go to the supermarket and you take out, say, a, um, you know, they're, they're, say, canned tomatoes or something like this. So it's in a can. You can't see the contents of what's in the can, right? But the company puts a label on the outside of the can that says canned tomatoes. And that way you can see what the content of, of, the, of the insides are. So it is with astrology. There, is, there are different types of light, a different hashpa, a different downpouring of influence that are coming down at different times during the year. Every single day, it's got a different quality to it. Even within a day, within the hours of a day, the type of light, the nature of the light that's coming down, the influence, the quality of the influence that's coming down has a different character to it. The arrangement of the stars in the sky and the planets in the sky are the label on the can describing what the nature of that light is, what the nature of that influence is. So you see, someone who's skilled at understanding the various arrangements of the stars can tell you the nature of the light that's coming down at that moment. I I hope that's clear. I think that's very clear. Now, if you use that understanding to get an insight into yourself, so that you're projecting this understanding inwardly as opposed to outwardly to try to understand future events. But if you're trying to understand the, the character of the light to get a better insight into yourself so that you can refine your personality and become a higher, better, holier person, then that type of astrology, so to speak, is permitted. Not to use it for magical purposes, like predicting the future. That's Usr, that's forbidden. Okay, so, so when we're talking about astrology, just understand that we're only talking about it in terms of self-improvement and things like that. Not, not in the magical, uh, you know, big cone hat, you know, type of way. So, again, let's, let's go back to what we're discussing. We're discussing the fact that El is the month of improvement. Right? Because it's like, it's the first letter of the word Are, the lion is roaring, we're returning to God. Moses is going up into Mount Sinai to get the second set of tablets after we're being forgiven for the golden calf. We're preparing for Rosh Hashanah. That's one element of the personality of Elul. The other element of the personality of Elul is the fact that the world is being created. Right? On the 25th day of Elul. And now let's go a little bit deeper into that. Okay? which is that every single Torah month has a Hebrew letter associated with it. And the letter that's associated with the month of Elul is the letter Yud. Now, we said that the world begins in Elul. So now, understand how this correlates so beautifully and perfectly with the letter Yud. Because the letter Yud is the smallest of all the letters. It's almost like just a dot. And all letters have the letter Yud within them. And in fact, if you think of something, the letter Aleph, if you begin to write the letter Aleph, first you write the letter Yud. So even the first letter of the alphabet begins with the letter Yud, amazingly. Not only that, but we're talking about the correlation right now between Elul, whose letter is the, whose, the, the month of Elul, whose letter is the letter Yud, and the fact that the world was created in the month of Elul, Yud means ten. And God created the world with ten utterances. Right? And God created the world 
for the sake of the Jewish people and gave us the Torah. God made the world out of the Torah. It says God looked into the Torah and created the world. So ten represents the Ten Commandments, which is a microcosm of the entire Torah. So we see how Yud is combining to, and it's also the source, the original source, because it's the time when all of us are returning, right? Okay. But again, we're deepening the parallels between creation being the month of, between Elul being the month of creation, and, and with this being the month of return. And now I want to make the point. You see, many people, many people, most people think, and this is just very basic and it's deeply rooted within us. Many people think, if once I make a mistake, I'm out of the game. I messed up. That's it. It's over. Right? And Hashem, Hashem knows us much more deeply than that. Hashem understands that we're fallible and and understands that we're going to make mistakes. And now look how, look at the genius now of the month of Elul. Because it's the month of beginning and it's the month of repair. In other words, the starting point in Torah thought is not you're good until you make a mistake and then you're out of the game. That's not it. The beginning point of our lives is you're fallible, right? I'm creating you brand new, but you're fallible. Now the question is, once you make a mistake, what are you going to do? The mistake is inevitable. Once you make the mistake, what is your approach to your own fallibility, to your own humanity? See how these two themes come together in Elul. The world is created anew. And simultaneously, it's the month of fixing. Because God knows we are going to need to fix something. Because God knows that we're going to make mistakes. It's not a question, are you making a mistake or are you not making a mistake? You've got to make a mistake. But the real question is, now that you've done it, what is your approach to your own humanity and your own fallibility? And here we see God's love and God's goodness. And one of the incredible things is the month of Elul is what, what, what we, how we call in Hebrew Roshay Tevos, which means an acronym. Elul, Aleph Lamed, Aleph Lamed, Ani Lidodi, Lidodi Li. I'm sorry, it's Aleph Lamed, Lamed Yud. Ani Lidodi, Lidodi Li. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Right? That's the ultimate expression of a love affair in Torah. That comes from the Song of Songs from Shlomo Melech, from King Solomon. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. You know, in, in many... Jewish weddings on the chuppah, the marriage canopy, that's, that phrase is, is, is right there on the marriage canopy. Because it shows like it's the ultimate expression of intimacy between two. So here you see that this month of Elul, which is a month of forgiveness, a month of preparation, as well as a month of creation. Right? Where God says, listen, I, I'm creating you, but I'm also understanding your fallibility, and I'm opening up the gates for you're able to be able to fix things and to return. It's, it's this expression of love. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. So, so there's another famous teaching from Shlomo Melech who says, who asks, who is the righteous one? And again, most of us would say the definition of righteousness, of a righteous person, is a person who doesn't make a mistake. And Shlomo Melech answers his own question and he says the definition of righteousness is a person who falls down seven times and gets back up. Here you see very clearly in one simple thought that it's not are you ever making a mistake. It's having made a mistake, are you rededicating yourself to the truth? Are you rededicating yourself to goodness? Are you rededicating yourself to closeness to God? Are you allowing yourself to be turned away by life's disappointments and circumstances? Or are you coming right back? God, I'm, I'm not going to stop knocking at your door. I'm not going to stop. God, I'm not going to stop. And, and that's so important for us, you know. It's so important, it's so important to us.
You know, God is telling a story to the world with each one of our lives. God is telling a story to the world with each one of our lives. That's, a, that's, that's an amazing thought. And each person has to ask themselves, what story is God telling the world through my life? What story is my life communicating to the world? Because it, it's absolutely communicating a story to the world. You know, I'll, I'll put it in a sort of a, a, a different way, maybe a slightly more morbid way, but, but, but it's another way for us to wrap our minds around this thought. If you go to someone's, we should all live long, but if you go to someone's funeral, there's certain things that are said. And in a, in a way, that's sort of like, in a way, on some level, that's, that was the story of their life. Right? But, but one shouldn't have to wait until that moment to understand that we're in the process of revealing the truth. This story of our life is a truth that we are revealing to the world. And you have control over that. That's the incredible thing. Even if a person has, say, a hard life and they suffer a lot, the story of their life is, you know something, that person never let... Life circumstances get him down. He always, he always saw the best in everything, even though he suffered. And then that becomes the story of their life. You see, many people have said very correctly and very deeply that we can't always control, in fact, more often than not, we can't control what happens to us. But our reactions to what happened to us, our reactions, we absolutely can control. You know, Rabbi Green once told an amazing sort of example of this. He said, he was just kind of making up an example, but the way he phrased it was so beautiful. He says, imagine a a married couple and the the husband comes home and and he's hungry and everything like that. And the wife puts in front of him a, a plate with like two saltine crackers in front of it. And that's dinner. And he's like, huh, all right, well, um... All right, and he eats the crackers, and he doesn't say anything, right? She must have had a hard day. Who knows, who knows what's going on? Next day, he comes home, hungry, he's worked very hard. There's a plate in front of him, two saltine crackers, right? It's like, hmm, you know? All right, all right, you know? And then the next day, the same thing. So, so what Rabbi Green said was, he said, you know, there's going to come a point where the... The man's not going to be there anymore. And you know what? The woman's not going to be there anymore. And you know what? We're projecting into the future now. The house is not going to be there anymore. And then you know what? The world itself is not going to be here anymore. But you know what's going to last forever? That person's reaction to the crackers for dinner. That, that lasts forever. So, so there's something incredibly empowering and great about this notion that, you know, we just, we're so focused, we just want things to go well, and we just want things to go right, and God willing, they should go well and right for all of us. Believe me. We know we should all get our prayers answered, and it should all go smoothly and easily. Believe me, that's what I want. But at the same time, though, it's not a small thing. I mean, to say the least, it's not a small thing. It's a giant thing how you actually react to those circumstances. And in the long haul of it, it's way more significant than what, what you either got or didn't get. You know? Because that's forever. That's your legacy. Forever. And so to get very deep, the question is, not just how we're reacting to this phone call or that email right now, or this challenge or that success, right? Because it's how we react to the good things, and, and not just the bad things, rather, but also the good things. But to get deeper, how are we reacting to the fact that we're even alive? Right? That necessitates some serious thought. Each of us are here on earth for a blink of an eye. 
What are we doing with that? What are we doing with that? If there is a creator, and there is, and there is a structure to the universe, and there is, you know, one of the points I'm, I'm trying to make more often is the fact that there's tremendous structure to the world. Interpersonally, the way people behave, it's very mysterious and random seemingly. But if you look at the planets and you look at the universe and you look at molecules and atoms and everything like that, the structure of the universe is, is absolutely amazing. We live in a very structured place. There is a great structure. And there's one who maintains the structure and who made the structure. So God, who's guiding us, looks to us and says, okay, what do you want your legacy to be? How are you going to use your time in the world? And ultimately, our, our mission as a people is to reveal to the world the oneness of God. A, that there is a God, and B, that He's one, You know, I was having a, a conversation with someone a while back. And, um, you know, no one wants to be brainwashed. No one wants to feel like they're being brainwashed. And I was trying to give him an example. And I said, you know, imagine baseball. Imagine you're learning the rules to baseball, right? And uh, you hit the ball. And you say, I want to run to third base. And you go, well, wait a second. No, you don't run to third base. You run to first base. And he says back to you, but wait a second. Third base is equidistant from home plate as first base is. So what's the difference if I run to third base or if I run to first base? And you say, no, because that's not, that's not what this is. You hit the ball and you run to first base. And he says, you know, the pitcher is throwing balls at me. I'm going to run there and tackle him. Mm-hmm. And you say, no, that's football. That's not baseball. In baseball, we don't tackle the other players on the opposing team. And he says, but the guy's throwing balls at me. What am I supposed to do? Just stand there? So there are certain, there are certain rules to the game. And there's a certain structure to the universe. And while we can make a very logical, you know, point, which is that third base is equidistant to home plate as first base is, so why can't I just run to third base? So a person says, you know what? So God wants a day of rest? Okay, so I'll do my day of rest on Tuesday. What difference does it make? Or... God wants a day of rest. I'll come up with the definition of rest, not God's definition, not the sage's definition. For me, it's very restful to eat a cheeseburger while watching television, driving my car. Right. OK, I, I get it. I get that that's restful. But but there is a structure. There is a structure to the universe. There is a structure. And it's not a question of now I'm brainwashing you or something like this. It's to acknowledge the fact that there is an ultimate truth. That there is a structure. And we have to become at peace with that. We have to recognize that. And we have to reveal that. And that's a good thing. Because the structure itself is a good thing. I can tell you something. When I first started keeping Shabbos, it's sort of like, oh my God, you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this and you can't do that. What are you doing to me? You know, I'm like in this time-space prison. For goodness sakes. You know, and then it hit me, wait, you mean I get to do nothing? <laughs> wow, thank you. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was giving a talk to some students, um, some college students, and one of them, I, you know, I was talking very passionately about Shabbos and things like this, and the person said very honestly, very beautifully, said, you know something, I appreciate that you like this, but I want you to know that my generation doesn't need this, because we have... We have um, 
And she was talking, she rolled off like five different, um, you know, high-tech type things like, you know, like we have these cell phones and we have Blackberries and we have Twitter and this, that and the other thing. And it's like, you know, and this was already true to me a couple of years ago, but now it's like really true. Have you seen how people have become enslaved by their phones? I mean, it's like, it is, it's terrifying. It's actually terrifying. People can't go moments without staring into this mind control box. It's really, it's, it's pathetic. It's like, if you need a day of rest, you've never needed a day of rest more than you need now. Believe me. You have never needed to put away your cell phone more in 2011 than in all of history. Ever. You know, I was talking to someone, he's like a big party planner in New York, you know. Very wonderful guy. And he says, you know, he says he sleeps with his cell phone. And he says he puts it, he's not married yet, he, he, he leaves it on top of a pillow. Right? You know, like a degree of... Re- and he had full insight into the absurdity of this. It's almost a degree of reverence for it, like an altar. You know, that's, those are my words, he didn't say that. But it's like... And, and the first thing he does in the morning is check it. The last thing he does before he goes to bed is, is work with it, right? It's like, you're going to tell me that because you have technology, you don't need Shabbos? Holy smokes! You know, come on, do you need Shabbos? To get yourself off of it. And you know something? There's a, an interesting phenomenon I've seen. What yeah. She felt that she felt that history and humanity had uh, evolved. I'm not honestly. I'm not positive what she was saying. I think that, but what I do think her point was was that um, these practices are like the Sabbath, like Shabbos, are archaic. That that technology, for instance, is like the great example of how we've evolved out of the needs for these these things. And, you know, if you actually look at the, the, the seven days of creation, the world's created on the first day, and Shabbos is created on the seventh day, and you see that we're actually evolving toward Shabbos. We're not evolving away from Shabbos. It's like humanity is getting to this place of ultimate peace and ultimate harmony with Hashem, which is what Shabbos is. Right? And we get to experience a taste of that in our own lives every single, every single week. That's what's so great about it. It's because we're pulling down future light. We're pulling down the light of the future ultimate harmony. And we get to experience in our lives, even in this still in-between period of history. You know, so, you know, it's just, uh, I'm just reminding myself, uh, it's a separate thought, but just, it's just so good. In terms of working toward perfection, you know, one of my favorite teachings from Reb Shlomo is, he says, you know, everybody loves you when you're a grape, and everybody loves you when you're wine. Right? People love finished products. They love you when you're a grape, and they love you when you're wine. But who loves you in between? He says, you know how much a grape has to be stomped on before it becomes wine? Right? When you're in between, who loves you then? He says, those are your real friends. And you know, I sort of like wanted to add to that teaching, it's like, the world right now is in between. The world right now is in between. God created the world, but we haven't reached the moment of perfection of the world yet. So who loves God now? While the world is still in between, while there's still poverty and brokenness and war and hatred. Who loves God now in this period of history? Those are God's real friends. You know, in fact, we actually have a tradition, believe it or not, that the Jewish people are not going to accept any converts once... The Mashiach comes once the Messiah arrives. And the reason is because, oh, you want to be on the Yankees now? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, who doesn't want to be on the Yankees? But, you know, or do you want to be on the Yankees in 1960, you know, 1972 when Bobby Mercer is the star of the Yankees? You know, it's like, you know, it's like Roy White. It's like, you know, when they were a big joke. Okay, so, so, so in other words... As much as the world is broken right now, and people are angry at God right now for a lot of good reasons, it's a lot of anger toward God. In fact, a lot of what people 
express as disbelief in God is not disbelief in God. If you talk to them and, you're, and you really listen to what they're saying, it's anger at God. It's not disbelief in God. Because anyone who uses their mind and who is intellectually honest just can only marvel at the unbelievableness of creation. It's like, you, there, there, can no be, there can be no other reaction than to just simply marvel at the magnificence of creation. So, of course, it's not by accident. Anyone who says it's by accident is a fool. It's an absolute fool, or is lying to themselves. I'm sorry. I have no patience for that. I, I, I have no patience. You know? And so, you know, it says, when you get angry, you forget. If you look in the Torah, I forgot what the next thing I wanted to say, because I got angry. I apologize to all the people who are still working out the truth of creation. You're not fools. But look again. <laughs> look again. All right. Let's, um, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Let's return back to Elul. And just... Yeah. Yeah. People, people are rightly angry at God because they see... They see a lot of hardship and they say, if God is good, why don't we see only goodness in the world? And it's a very powerful argument. It's a very powerful argument. And the answer is because the world is still in the middle. That we're still evolving toward the truth. Right? In other words, we're here to finish creation. The world isn't done yet. People think, that God created the world and it's done. And what he created was a very imperfect product. And if he's so great and he created such an imperfect product, how, how perfect can he be actually? These are very powerful arguments. But the, the answer is, is that God hasn't finished creating the world yet. And that we are his partners in terms of finishing the world. That's why we're here. In other words, it's not that we had the bad luck to arrive at a lousy party and now we're stuck in a bad party. No, the party is bad. That's why you're here, to make it into a good party. That's why you're here. It's not just this awful coincidence. It's the very reason why you're here is because there's still injustice and there's still poverty and there's still hatred. That's why you're here. And so... And so we're partners with God, and that's the incredible thing that God makes us partners with Him. And we're going to bring about the great redemption. And that will be God's doing, but he, he privileges us to be partners in it. You know? I mean, if you think of how a baby is made, what the man's contribution in terms of time spent and the woman's contribution, it's really, it's quite inequitable, to say the least. The woman is doing all the work, and yet the father is still called a parent. You know, it's like God will really be doing all the work, but we, we get to be called a partner. So that's an awesome thing that he even allows us to be called a partner. That's an incredible thing, actually, you know. Um, okay. Let me just, uh, go ahead. Um, could you touch upon the idea of Tiferet and 12 tribes and the must just tie it back in there because you had a very beautiful insight Okay, okay, this is, this, is a, this is another thought, this is another thought, but, but um, we'll throw it in. Which is, which is that one of the ways that we can really come about and bring a, a great fixing to this world, okay, is for there to be peace among us. We need to have peace among us. And... You know, everyone's got to start with their own house first. Okay? You know, one of the beautiful teachings that Reb Shlomo says is that, you know, when a lot of nations argue with each other, they, they point fingers at each other. And they say, you do this, you've got to stop doing that. And the other nation says, you do this, you've got to stop doing that. Right? But the Jewish people, when it comes to Passover... Right? What's the first thing that we're doing? Pa Passover is the month of redemption. It's the month of freedom. What's the first thing that we're doing before we, before we uh, actually celebrate the holiday? We're cleaning our own house. 
Right? We're, we're starting with ourselves. We're cleaning our own house first before we have the temerity or the chutzpah to point a finger at anybody else. First we begin with ourselves. And that has to be the case on an individual level also. We have to first fix our own lives and everything like that and get our own act together before we start claiming to be a victim and pointing fingers at other people. Okay. Now toward that end, how do, you, how do we fix our own house? How do we make peace among each other? So, so among the Jewish people, you know, there's a, a teaching from the Kutzka Rebbe, one of the great teachings, which says that when you meet another person in the street, you're never surprised that they don't look like you. And yet somehow we're always shocked that when you meet another person, he doesn't think the same as you. Right? Somehow this is like, how can he be? How can he disagree with me? He's got his own opinion? What? You know, and that's endlessly surprising to us. But why? Why should it be? Now, to sort of like extend that thought a little bit more, we have to understand that there are different personalities. The 12 tribes, and you know, each of the months of the year has a different tribe associated with it, okay? The 12 tribes are each 12 different archetypical personalities. And so that's very important for us to, to understand that there are people who don't think like us, but again, I'm talking about within the Torah, I'm talking about within the Jewish people right now, I'm talking about the fact that there are different perspectives of truth. Now, there's also something that's not true. Like Rabbi Green, I heard, said something very funny. You know, it says that there are 70 facets to the Torah, right? Which means 70 different ways to understand everything, right? But there's also something which is the 71st facet, which is not a facet. In other words, you can say something that's incorrect. You can say something that's actually incorrect. And you can't claim, no, it's one of the 70 facets. No, that's actually the 71st facet. That's not a facet. It's just wrong, okay? So, so when understanding, this is a very nuanced teaching, which is why I, I haven't gotten to the point that, that Sam has asked me to say yet. It, it has to be set up properly. It, there, is, there is the concept that there is a great variety and richness and depth but there's also that part which is outside the tent, which is just off and incorrect, right? And a person has to really understand that they may say, well, I just disagree because I'm talking about another facet. And when your other facet is actually not a facet, but you're, you're, you're just off the mark. Just as nicely said as possible. Okay, now, let's go through the chain with that in mind, okay? The chain is that we have Abraham, and Abraham stands for kindness. Okay, this is the gate of service to God that he opened up, chesed. And yet, interestingly, just on a biographical note, a very challenging idea, very interestingly, Abraham's tests are what? To kick Yishmael out of his house? To put Isaac on the altar and to sacrifice him? Right? Which ultimately really wasn't the test, but nonetheless, that's... That's what he thought the test was, and that ambiguity was intended by God. So, in other words, you have the kindest person in, like, the history of the world. The kindest. Being tested with something that was the opposite of his nature. Because, you know, sometimes you can say, you know what, I'm a nice guy. I do these things because I'm a nice guy. But are you doing these nice things because God asked you to do them, or just because it's your nature? It's a very big Difference, because what if God asks you to do something that goes against your nature? Do you still want to do it? Or is your primary allegiance to your own, quote-unquote, personality proclivity? Right? In Abraham's case, is kindness. So Abraham showed, no, I'm L'shem Shemayim. What I really want to do is God's will, even if it goes against my nature. So that's just an aside, but that's a very powerful, very powerful idea. Because what God asks us to do ultimately is His will, not just what we like, and what comes most easily to us. It's a very, very fundamental um, category there. But the main point here is that Abraham is kindness. He has a son who's the opposite extreme in terms of personality. That's Yitzchak. That's Gvura. That's sort of like, you know, it says, I heard from Reb Shlomo, an amazing teaching, that Abraham had a tent that was open on all four sides. It means that wherever you approached in the desert, you were walking in through the front door and that you had like, it's like this all access kind of pass, an incredible thing. Listen to this. 
his son, Yitzchak, had one door, and there was a guard at the door. And if you knocked on the door, the guard would say, yes, can I help you? Okay? But this is also Torah. This is also Torah. Okay, so that's Yitzchak. Now comes, now comes Yaakov. Yaakov is the fusion of these two paths. This is called Teferit, which is beauty. This is full integration. Now the question is, let's go back to the Kutzker Torah. When you meet someone on the street who doesn't look like you, you're not surprised. But when you meet someone who doesn't think like you, suddenly you're shocked, right? So Teferit is that fusion. That's what we want. And it says, amazingly, that Yaakov is the choice, the choice of the Avos, the choice, the choice product of our forefathers. That's what the Gemara says. Okay? Because he's integrating these two paths into harmony. Okay. So now here's the question. Who's Teferit? Are you Teferit or am I Teferit? Right? Is your Torah observant approach the right one? Or is my Torah observant approach the right one? Or is... You know, should I wear my payas down to my, you know, shoulders? Or should I not even have a beard at all? Or should I wear a t-shirt and jeans and keep Shabbos? Like, what's, because I'm living in the modern day? What is, what, who has Teferit? Right? So that, then that becomes a source of contention, right? Who's the ultimate embodiment? So now this is what, this is where the thought actually begins. Okay? It's very short. It's like a PS, but it's a major PS. Okay? Yaakov has 12 sons. Yaakov, who stands for Teferit, who stands for Harmony, has 12 sons who are all Torah observant, who are all different personalities and have different attributes. This one is a businessman. This one's a Torah scholar. This one's a warrior. This one's just dedicated, he's a, a Kohen, he's just doing the service of God's work in the, in the Holy Temple. So, so, in other words, if you, they say a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. You have to go to the next step and understand that Teferit then has these 12 branches within Israel. And personality types, all consistent with Torah observance. And so, so with this in mind, we can generate more love and harmony uh, among us, right? Because we don't, we won't criticize. You know, there, there, there are people who think that you, you graduate to a black hat. I don't understand this. I graduate to a, I graduate to a hat? That's, you know, I, I, nothing against people who wear a black hat. You know, it's a beautiful thing. But that, that this is somehow, like, I don't... I haven't got my PhD in, 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 in Torah until I have a hat? For goodness sakes. For goodness sakes. And again, nothing against someone who wears one. It's beautiful. So it's a beautiful form of dignity and seriousness and intention. I love it. I got no problems with it. But, you know, it's, to think that this is, there's some primary distinction between someone who wears one and someone who doesn't is quite foolish. So, so, so with this in mind, this idea of Teferit and the twelve tribes, right, within Teferit, we can have more harmony and more love among, among our people and among the world, right? Okay. Now, I just want to finish with, with one thought, just on a very practical level, about the month of Elul. And again, I want to repeat the fact that Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment for all peoples, Jewish, non-Jewish. You know, so everyone should really rally to pray and to give tzedakah and to get their act together, so to speak, at this point in the year. It's very, very important, you know, for everything, for the whole world. All right. Now, if you, if you, so what is this time before Rosh Hashanah? So on Rosh Hashanah, God looks into our life and then he decides what's the next best step for our fixing. That's what it is. That's when we talk about the judgment, if you will, it's a very scary word. I understand it's very laden with all sorts of like implications emotionally and whatnot. But basically, to, to make it more beautiful and more accessible and realer, what is, what, what is going on in Rosh Hashanah? 
God is saying, what is the next best thing for you? Okay? So now, let me ask you something. If I'm, let's say I want to be a, uh, a restaurateur, okay? If I'm working so hard and it's like, maybe, maybe I'm not in the restaurant business right now, but I come home, or let's say I, I got a job at a restaurant and I'm just a worker, maybe I'm a, a busboy or something like this, but at night, even though I'm tired, I come home and I'm testing out recipes in my kitchen and I'm really getting it together, right? And I'm taking it very, very seriously, you know? then maybe the next best thing is for me to have my own restaurant. Maybe it is. You know, because I've shown a dedication and a level of hard work, and I'm working on my, very hard on my own, and I've got, maybe, I've come up with a plan, a business plan. Someone says, you know something? I, I want to taste your wares. No, that's an, that's, a, that's an awesome dessert. That's an awesome piece of chicken. You're, you're, you're professional. You're on a professional level. You should have a restaurant. Okay, so the level of preparation and then the decision whether you get backing toward that go are very consistent. Now, let's give another example. Let's say, you know what? I, I love food and I'm morbidly obese <laughs> and I don't really do anything except eat and I'm quite lazy, but I watch some cooking shows <laughs> And I want someone just to give me, like, you know, $500,000 for a restaurant. And I'm very sincere in wanting a, uh, to own a restaurant. I don't know that that's going to happen, frankly. Maybe. But I think more likely than not, it's not going to happen. Even though you've expressed an interest in it, more likely than not, it's not going to happen. So, I'm trying to use this as, a, as, a, as an example for the type of, how we should approach preparing for Rosh Hashanah. You see, because there's certain things that we all want. And God is going to look at us and He's going to say, are you working toward those things? Are you trying very hard to achieve those things? If you are, it could be the next best thing would be for you to have those things. But if a person is not working hard toward it, maybe the next best thing, and yet they're totally dedicated to it. Right? That guy on the couch, he's not losing any weight. He's just watching TV. He's not even cooking. Right? Maybe the next best thing for him, I'm just speculating, is not to get a restaurant so that he can actually think, is that really what I want? Because if it is what I want, I've got to take steps toward getting it. So it could be the next best thing for him is to understand that he's not properly preparing for that thing. In other words, the next best thing is for him not to get what he wants. That's not God being mean, God forbid. So, let's look at our own lives through that prison and ask ourselves, are we presenting that model of work and dedication and preparation indeed because... Here's the last headline for the month of Elul. According to the Sefer Yetzirah, the book of creation, like the primary original mystical text in Judaism, the attribute that has to be fixed in Elul is action. It's action. Okay? And that ties very much, all the, month has, all the months have different elements too. Okay? Water, earth, air, fire. It's earth. Earth is the month of Elul, that element, because it's that grounding, action earth, it's doing, it's being real, it's making some kind of positive step toward what you really want. And then, if we do that, we position ourselves very well for Rosh Hashanah. Because Hashem then says, look, this person's serious, they're taking action, they're laying the groundwork. Maybe the next best thing for them is actually to get that opportunity. And so, Hashem should bless us all with a good, sweet year. And bless us that we should really take advantage of this great opening that Elul is. And to also understand, as we were saying earlier, that this month of creation, because the world was created on the 25th of Elul, that's the first day of creation, that this month of creation is also a month of fixing because God understands 
that from the outset, from the very beginning, he knows that we are fallible. And the question isn't whether we make mistakes or not, but what we do once we've made a mistake, how we rededicate ourselves, if we rededicate ourselves. And that that's an expression of God's love, that he gives us the opportunity to come back. Because Elul is Ani Lidodi, Lidodi Li, that Lidodi Li, right? Actually, I'm sorry, the proper spelling of Elul is Aleph Lamed Vav Lamed. Ani Lidodi, Vidodi Li. Let's fix that, okay? Uh, but it's the same idea. I'm my beloved's and my beloved's is mine, right? And, uh, and Hashem should just really just fix the whole world. And you know something? We should all be in Israel with Mashiach even before Rosh Hashanah. That we should really be able to see the culmination of all of our efforts. All of our efforts right now.